Welcome back. You're listening to the front page edition of All Things Considered. I'm Shane Chernoff. And I'm Kaylee Chambers. A Gainesville man died early this morning after he ran a red light and was hit by a semi in eastern Gainesville. 31-year-old Tyler Galtney, who was not wearing a seatbelt at the time, was ejected from his seat after colliding with the truck at approximately 5.30 a.m. and died on the scene. The intersection was closed off until about 9.30 this morning. Gainesville Police Department spokesperson Ben Tobias says the semi-truck driver, 68-year-old Larry Windle, had no time to brake after Galtney ran the red light and was therefore not at fault for the collision. Preliminarily, it appears that the Ford ran the red light and then crossed into the path of the semi-truck. Um, and the semi-truck, you know, not being able to stop in time, ran into the driver's side of the, uh, the vehicle and it appears that the impact killed the driver instantly. According to Tobias, no one else was injured in the collision. The city of Ocala could be looking at a huge upturn in their economy thanks to FedEx and a boutique hotel. WUFT's own Ben Bornstein has the story. Ocala's economy seems to be in for a big boom with the potential addition of a hotel and a major shipping company. The County Commission of Marion County and the City Council of Ocala will be brought in tomorrow to approve an agreement which would provide incentives to entice FedEx Ground to build a new facility at the Marion County Commerce Park in Ocala. According to estimates, the facility could bring in over $100 million per year should FedEx decide to establish a facility there. However, Ocala Public Information Office Manager Janine Robbins says a few adjustments would need to be made in order to accommodate FedEx. I, I do know that, that there would have to be some um, infrastructure uh, enhancements made out there to meet the specifications um, should the company elect to locate here um, and, and some expense would be associated with those infrastructure improvements. The FedEx facility could bring 165 permanent jobs to the area and Robin says that even the temporary construction jobs could help. You know, planning and all of those things that, that go into building a, a new facility of that size would, um, would certainly create jobs until those permanent jobs could be um, put in place. Robin says that all of these factors could help Marion County's historically high unemployment rate. Marion County um, historically has one of the highest unemployment rates in the state of Florida. So anything that, that could be done to help um, you know, bring those numbers down is certainly exciting. Ocala's other potential Titanic addition comes in the form of a boutique hotel. The Ocala City Council decided last Tuesday to grant a group of local developers the rights to explore the feasibility of building a hotel downtown on the site of the former Chamber of Commerce. The deal gives the developers six months to decide if the project is practical and can be financed. Bryce Peak of Ocala Development and president of the Ocala Downtown Business Alliance said Ocala Development and the city sat down to work out an agreement that he feels fits into the city's master plan. We just went forward with the um, in front of the city council during a workshop, putting our initial concept in front of them, seeing if it's something that is in line with their vision, with the 2035 vision, and the downtown master plan. And it seems as though it is. And so we are granted a six-month period of time where we can really delve into the the uh, viability of the project. Peak believes the six months the city is giving his group is more than enough time to get their analysis together. There's a, there's a lot of questions that need to be asked in order uh, for the feasibility of this thing, both with the financial aspects, you know, can the market support it, but also with the site itself. So we, we feel like six months is adequate time to answer most of those, those questions. 
The group is exploring and developing an 82 to 100 bed hotel with 10,000 square feet of retail, food, and beverage space. Peek says an exclusive deal is almost essential to Ocala development because he feels his company would be wasting time, money, and effort if other companies were to get involved. We've already spent time and money uh, looking into the possibility of bringing this thing downtown. And uh, before we incurred more expenses, you know, invested more time and, and resources into it, we wanted some sort of assurance that we'd have the opportunity to present something to the city. The potential hotel construction would include a conference center as well as a parking garage, which Peak feels is absolutely necessary. Parking is going to be, be an issue that needs to be addressed um, if the development moves forward. It's, it's an integral part to the success of the hotel and the um, conference center. So the addition of parking will, will be a necessity in order for us to, to move forward. Bryce Peak added the city's 2035 vision plan and the downtown master plan identified sites that could spur additional development in the downtown corridor. Peak feels that if built, the hotel would provide jobs as well as pump money into the Ocala economy. The hotel, if approved, coupled with the aforementioned FedEx hub, would provide Ocala two profitable facilities for years to come. For Florida's 89.1 WFTFM, I'm Ben Bornstein in Gainesville. Florida Secretary of State Ken Dunstner released his recommendations today for increasing accessibility and efficiency in Florida elections. The recommendations, which include extending the early voting schedule, adding new and larger early voting sites, and limiting ballot length, were made after Governor Rick Scott tasked Secretary Dunstner with seeking out and receiving input from elections experts throughout the state on how to improve Florida elections. Election count. Alachua County Supervisor of Elections, Pam Carpenter, says the longer early voting period will be evident in the voter numbers. Our biggest drop in participation was during the early voting uh, time frame. We had about 14,000 fewer early voting voters in 2012 than we did in 2008. So I truly believe that the expanded number of days would benefit our community. On the other hand, Marion County Supervisor of Elections Wesley Wilcox doesn't see as much of a drastic increase in voter participation. He says early voting has just made it easier for citizens to find a day to vote. Even with the, the advent of early voting back, kind of as we see it in today's environment in 2006, didn't really significant or statistically significantly increase voter participation. It just allowed a lot broader opportunity for the voter. It made it much more convenient as opposed to having to schedule your entire world around this, you know, uh, first Tuesday in, in November. Another proposition from Secretary Dutzner is shortening the ballot length by cutting down on the number of words describing each piece of legislation. Wilcox says this concept will allow voters to have a better understanding of what is on their ballot. By minimizing the length of the amendments, first off, you, you allow a voter to complete their ballot in a much shorter amount of time, um, which that in turn just allows them to become more educated on, on the, the few issues that, that are proposed to them. Although setting a limit on legislation summaries could potentially lead voters to not have full knowledge of what is being proposed, Carpenter says voters will still have the ability to see the complete amendment proposals.
the full ballot question is available online for anyone who wants to go in and read the whole body of the law that they're proposing. So there's an opportunity for the public to be educated and get in-depth information, uh, but the summary doesn't need to have all of that on it. Wilcox also says that these new recommendations will give more flexibility throughout the state, especially because of the differences between counties. So I think that realization that all counties, all voting jurisdictions are the same, that the realization that's, that that is not true is probably one of the, the greatest points out of the, the entire report. Secretary Detzner also suggests supervisors of elections reevaluate their 2012 general election precincts, upload votes earlier in elections to test county systems, establish best practices and ensure contracts with their vendors, have safeguards to ensure the warranty, maintain and maintenance and upgrading of voting equipment. Florida independent colleges and universities have reason to cheer Governor Rick Scott's budget proposal. Scott wants to boost the dollar amount of grants Florida students receive to go into those tuitions. Florida Public Radio's Lynn Hatter reports the head of the group says it's a sign lawmakers are finally realizing the cost savings private colleges and universities provide to the state. Tuition at private colleges and universities is the main source of funding for those schools and not subsidized by the state. The state does provide some grants to students, which are mostly known by the acronyms FRAG and PSAG. Five years ago, those grants were worth about $3,000. Now they're at about $2,100. Governor Rick Scott wants to increase that amount, and Dr. Ed Moore, president of the Independent Colleges and Universities, says it's about time. We're getting a pretty good response from the legislature on that as well because what's occurred uh, is the enrollment in the FRAG program actually dropped. Fewer in-state students have been going to the private schools, leading to the decrease in demand. But when those students attend private schools, it results in a cost savings to the state. For Florida Public Radio, I'm Lynn Hatter in Tallahassee. Florida voters over the age of 50 made up 40 percent of the state's electorate in 2012, according to the AARP. Florida Public Radio's Stephen Rodriguez reports a new study by the association used to craft their legislative agenda shows the elderly are more up-to-date and opinionated on current issues than they used to be. Nearly 90 percent of Floridians over the age of 50 support legislation against driving and texting, the AARP survey shows. More than a third of older Floridians support a 6% online sales tax, while nearly the same amount stand opposed. AARP Florida State Director Jeff Johnson says he isn't surprised by these findings. On many of these things, what we've seen today are really not that new. It's not so much that their views have changed that considerably, it's that the environment around them has changed and they've learned things that they didn't know before. Almost half of older Floridians strongly oppose the upcoming legislation, requiring utility customers to pay upfront and increased rates for the planning and construction of nuclear power plants. According to the study, seniors also overwhelmingly approve the enforcement of quality care standards in nursing homes. For Florida Public Radio, I'm Stephen Rodriguez. The state of Florida sued to overturn the Affordable Care Act and lost. Lawmakers had targeted a piece of the law that forced the state to offer Medicaid to uninsured residents. But because the state lost their legal fight, Florida now has to find a way to make Medicaid expansion work and quickly. In other words, the state has money to find. Karen Burkett from member station WLRN in Miami spoke with Professor Stephen Ullman from the University of Miami School of Business Administration about that very issue. 
Stephen Elman, let's begin with how Medicaid expansion will affect hospitals in South Florida. The Affordable Care Act has some unforeseen consequences that were not evident when the law was initially passed. And this is what's making public hospitals a little bit concerned. What changed was when the Supreme Court ruled that the requirement that states expand the Medicaid program, when the Supreme Court said that was not a requirement of the Affordable Care Act, and that was the one piece that the Supreme Court threw out, it meant that public hospitals that rely a lot on payment by uninsured patients were now not going to necessarily get expanded payment from those patients when they come into the emergency room or utilize the hospital. What happened was, in the Affordable Care Act, there was a cutback that public hospitals had had always gotten. It was for having a large proportion of patients who were uninsured and were poor. That went away in the Affordable Care Act because the perception was Medicaid would now be expanded. With Medicaid now in limbo about its expansion, that puts the public hospitals at significant risk. So would you explain the distinction between what's going to happen in Broward and what's going to happen in Miami-Dade County? We tend to have in Miami-Dade County a large proportion of uninsured individuals. We have 600,000 uninsured individuals in Miami-Dade County. That is a very significant number. And what that means is if indeed Medicaid is not expanded, this will put at risk still many of our hospitals in Miami-Dade County. Broward County will have some issues associated with that. That will be a concern, but not as significant an issue as one will have in Miami-Dade County because of the huge number of uninsured that currently exist here. Is Florida scrambling because they did sue? They weren't interested in the Affordable Care Act. They challenged Medicaid expansion. They challenged other elements of the Affordable Care Act as well, including the exchanges. So there is a bit of scrambling going on right now. Part of it is political. Part of it is structural. On the structural end, states that had decided not to fight the Affordable Care Act and to start preparing for it starting about three years ago, started setting up state exchanges, insurance exchanges. Would you define what an exchange is? The state exchanges were set up for people who do not have access to insurance through their employer, who would find themselves in the private marketplace trying to buy insurance individually at very high expense. It was basically to set up risk pools so that people could come together as one group and also get counsel from professionals about what kind of insurance they should be buying, and they would be buying it in the private marketplace by organizations, healthcare insurance companies that had passed certain tests. And so that was to be set up, and many states had prepared for that with federal funding starting back about three years ago. The state of Florida did not. What will happen if the state of Florida cannot set up those state exchanges is the federal government will come in. A new report calculated that Medicaid expansion would have a spin-off effect. It would be a huge relief to local hospitals, who by law have to treat anyone in an emergency room, whether or not they can afford the care. I'm Karen Burkett. Gas cost increases caught many off guard over the past week. Predictions estimated only moderate price gains, but some areas saw increases of up to 15 cents. Florida's 89.1 WUFTFM's Eric Ugardichia reports. Drivers at the pumps may have been shocked this past week after oil and gas costs rose at a much faster rate than expected. Auto Club Group AAA's South Branch spokesman Mark Jenkins says that trend isn't likely to stop. 
You can expect to see prices inch up here as we continue on throughout the uh, the next couple of months. Uh, I pulled numbers last year and saw that gas prices rose about five cents a week and maxed out at about three dollars and ninety four cents last year in mid-April. Then prices began to drop and reached their lowest point on July 1st at $3.20. So we can certainly expect to see gas prices continue to fluctuate. Um, they could go up another 3 to $0.05 cents here in the, um, the immediate future. And as, um, you know, as, as this uh, transition is finalized, I think it'll just take a little bit of time before these uh, prices actually settle down. An increase in economic optimism, both domestically and internationally, has helped to keep pushing up oil costs. Jenkins emphasized that oil prices play a major role in determining the prices drivers end up paying at the pump. Oil has continued to rise since early January, and that's currently on its longest run of increases since Jan- since 2004. So that's quite a trend that's going on right now. And usually when oil prices go up, so does gas. And so gas prices are following suit. Jenkins also says supply issues are contributing to costs and that this season is a crucial time of the year. This also has to do with refineries as they're preparing to switch over to that more expensive summer blend, which happens every year around mid-February to early March. Florida's average price of regular unleaded gasoline is 14 cents higher than last week at $3.56. Meanwhile, the national average rose 16 cents up to $3.51. Reporting for Florida's 89.1 WFT-FM, I'm Eric Ugartechia. For the first time in six years, state economists say Florida will have a budget surplus, and a good chunk of the leftover money could go to teachers. Governor Rick Scott wants to give every teacher in the state a $2,500 pay raise. It would cost $480 million in all. Though the legislature would first have to approve the pay raise, education advocates say it's a step in the right direction. But as State Impact Florida reporter Sarah Gonzalez tells us, many say the plan to pay teachers more comes at an odd time. When Governor Rick Scott took office, the very first bill he signed into law required all schools to evaluate teacher performance. If they get a poor evaluation, they can lose their jobs. And whatever rating they get will help determine their salary but not until 2014. For a while now, we've been hearing how bad we are. We need to weed out bad teachers. There's so many bad teachers. Outside Treasure Island Elementary School in Miami, fifth grade teacher Beverly Dowell says it doesn't make any sense to pay every teacher more money before those bad teachers have even been identified. On one hand, you're clearing us out of the system. On the other hand, you're going to reward us with $2,500 because According to the governor, we truly deserve it. So let me see. We have to be concerned. Some say the governor is trying to court teachers now as his bid for re-election gets closer. In his first year as governor, he cut more than a billion dollars in education spending. And he's cut teacher salaries by 3% when he required them to contribute to their retirement pensions. But Governor Rick Scott now says teachers deserve the raise. He recently went on an education listening tour and says he heard stories of teachers doing a lot with a little. Now, I believe in merit pay. I believe in measurement. I believe in accountability. And we're going to continue to work on that. But right now, the right thing to do is an across-the-board pay raise for all of our full-time teachers. Teachers like Dowell, who's been teaching for 18 years, say they're not holding their breath. I don't want to be overly skeptical, but I would want to say that I am being realistic. 
we have been down this path before where we have been promised increase in educational funding only to have it slashed. Even if the legislature approves the pay raise, there's a chance teachers still won't see the money. Andy Ford is president of the Florida Education Association, Florida's teachers union. He says it's up to each school district to decide whether they would use the money specifically for teacher raises. There's other demands for money. Um, everybody's talking about increasing security costs, so that, that you know that's going to cost money. The governor is considering putting the money in a fund that would make it harder for districts to use it for anything other than teacher raises. The average teacher salary in Florida is $46,000. That's $10,000 less than the national average. State Senator Joseph Abruzzo wants to change that with a constitutional amendment. The Palm Beach County Democrat has filed a measure that would require Florida teachers to be paid at least the national average by 2015. The funding would come from the general revenue. We would have to prepare, ramp up for it, allocate for it, knowing that it is coming. We, we can do this. We, as the fourth largest state, we can afford to, to take care of our teachers. Legislators will decide whether to put Abruzzo's proposed amendment on the ballot next November, and then it will be up to the voters. During the upcoming legislative session, Florida lawmakers will decide whether to add more than a billion dollars in additional education spending. With State Impact Florida, I'm Sarah Gonzalez in Miami. Florida lawmakers are looking into a proposed initiative to rehabilitate nonviolent inmates before they have a chance to reoffend. But as Florida Public Radio's Sasha Cordner reports, while many agree about the idea behind what's called smart justice reforms, they're not too happy about what this name implies. Why should the state spend billions of dollars to keep prisoners locked up, knowing that many of them have serious issues which need to be resolved, and yet we're doing little to address these problems? Barney Bishop is the president and CEO of the Florida Smart Justice Alliance, an initiative developed by a number of business leaders to find cost-effective ways to improve public safety. Bishop has already presented before the criminal justice committees in both the House and Senate about ways to reduce the chance of inmates coming back to prison, or what's known as the recidivism rate. And he says one good step is to privatize work release centers, an idea that's also part of Governor Rick Scott's recent budget proposal. The employment rate of inmates at state work release centers is 75 percent. That's a pretty good number. And their recidivism rate is 32 percent. But the employment rate at facilities run by the private sector is at 86 percent of them um, are employed. And their collective recidivism rate is only 18 percent, which means significantly less crime victims in the future. However, some like Ron Silver with the Teamsters Union not only dislike the proposal, but also dislike the name. He says he's a bit offended as a former state lawmaker who chaired criminal justice committees in the House and Senate. When I look at the word smart justice, I, I take maybe a little offense to that. Not a lot of offense because I'm heartened by all this. But the bottom line is that means what we were doing before wasn't smart, okay? the things that we did, okay? But now we're going to enter the phase of being smart. So I think a better terminology would be smarter rather than smart because I think what we did before was pretty good. And Senator Greg Evers, who now chairs the Senate Criminal Justice Committee, somewhat agrees. He says he liked hearing from both sides about their views on smart justice reforms, but he would rather use the term coined by silver. I like that smarter justice because I feel like, you know, the time that I've spent is being smart justice. I like the 
okay, I'm just getting smarter. It's taken me a while, but I'm getting there, okay? And it didn't get much better over in the Florida House. Let me confess this. I do not like the name uh, Smart Justice. That's Republican Representative Matt Gates, who chairs the House Criminal Justice Subcommittee. He says he takes issue with that name. I don't believe that there is any association, a lobbyist, political party, member of the legislature that is that has quite yet cornered the market on what is smart. And, and to me, it seems a bit uh, self-laudatory to self-identify with smart. It's sort of like if I started the Smart Legislator Caucus. We, we would all probably want to be members of such a caucus, but yet we would all have different ideas on what what is or is not smart, and I, and I think that's been the challenge in this movement. But Bishop fired back with a response of his own. With respect to the chairman's comment about it being self-laudatory, I have no problem with that. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. We think it's a great name, and frankly, we believe that it is smart. And ladies and gentlemen, you were elected to think outside of the box to do what's best for the state of Florida. And I'm here to tell you, on behalf of Smart Justice, that to do business the way that we've always done it is not good enough anymore. We're spending too much money and we don't have good outcomes. Overall, lawmakers in both the House and Senate say they're happy to look at the proposals and want to at least continue the conversation on the best thing for the inmates and the taxpayers as well. A proposal currently looking into ideas by the Smart Justice Alliance is being drafted in the House. For Florida Public Radio, I'm Sasha Cordner. When Florida researchers have a great idea for a new drug or other technology, they can hire private consultants to help bring their brainchild to life in the marketplace. Or they can ha get business help for free from the state-run tech incubator. Florida Public Radio's Jessica Palumbo reports that organization says it's been so successful that the Florida legislature should invest five times as much in it. Florida State University professor and researcher Jacob Van Landingham has developed a drug he says should reduce the long-term effects of brain injury after concussion. You have issues of memory impairment, attention deficit, issues with headaches, nausea, vertigo, dizziness uh, for months to years after the fact, increased risk of suicide. If he raises enough money and gets FDA approval, Van Landingham will be able to sell the concussion drug Prevazol. And he says the difference between life and death for his drug has been the help he's gotten from the state-funded Florida Institute for the Commercialization of Public Research based in Gainesville. Being able to put in play all the, the articles of incorporation, being able to have a lawyer who could start teaching me how to raise money, being able to start understanding what the safety measures were to make sure I didn't do something that was against the law. I mean, there was just so many different things that I would have never known. The Institute's free services for researchers include management inventories and overhauls to help them attract private investors. CEO Jamie Grooms says in the year since he's taken the helm, 19 companies have also gotten loans from the Institute's $10 million fund. Grooms, who started two successful biotech companies of his own, says part of his reason for heading the institute is selfish. One of my daughters wants to be a biomedical engineer, and she asked me to start up a daddy-daughter company. And I don't want to leave Florida. This new community of startup and entrepreneurship has started, and I'm, I'm bought into it. So Grooms is asking the legislature to multiply the institute's fund by five this year. He sees it like this. With the state-funded institute investing $50 million of its money, more startups would become viable enough to attract private investors. 
And when more tech companies succeed, research experts say the whole state economy should benefit. Every mission statement of any chamber, any organization involved in economic development has in it high-wage, high-skill, high-value jobs. That's Jack Sullivan, who directs the nonprofit Florida Research Consortium. He says one great way to create high-paying jobs is to nurture high-tech startups. And he says researchers need more funding. Florida ranks 46th in the nation for money invested in research and development as compared to its gross state product. So we're well below our fighting weight in terms of the ideas that we produce. FSU's Van Landingham says that additional funding from the state could keep a whole lot more ideas from ending up in the graveyard like his almost did. If the state would make a commitment to entice other people with great ideas to take this chance, you would really see a lot of improvements in a lot of people's lives. Republican Senator Jeremy Ring from Margate has filed a bill that would start the $50 million fund with general revenue money. And the fund would grow over time when successful companies eventually buy out the state's share. A companion bill is expected soon in the House. Last time the Institute requested funding, the legislature gave it only $10 million of the $25 million it requested. For Florida Public Radio, I'm Jessica Palumbo. Congress is preparing for a massive overhaul of the country's immigration policies. A bipartisan group of U.S. senators just released the first phase of a plan. The group is led by Florida Republican Senator Marco Rubio. One of the leaders in the U.S. House of Representatives on this issue, on this issue is Republican Representative Mario Diaz-Balart, who represents a district stretching from Miami to southwest Florida. Diaz-Balart has been an advocate for immigration reform since he was elected to Congress in 2003. He spoke to Valerie Alker from member station WGCU in Fort Myers about the strategy for moving the Senate immigration plan through the House. I was very encouraged by what I saw uh, in the Senate's... Uh, I, they haven't released a plan. What they've, used, they've released are some guidelines, I guess, or some principles. And I think, those, I think those principles are reasonable and well-reasoned. And what I see in the Senate's guidelines or their principles is a genuine effort to try to fix what is broken. And that's, uh, that's a step in the right direction. The Senate is often um, described as being a more collegial body than the House of Representatives, and uh, it has a Democratic majority as compared to the House. How do you feel about um, it making it out of the House? Well, look, this has clearly been a very difficult issue. If it would have been an easy issue would have been solved a long time ago. I am as optimistic now, however, as, uh, as I have ever been uh, as far as trying to get to a real solution, but I still understand that it is a very difficult task. It is still a seriously uphill battle. Do you think that support for that would be uh, fairly bipartisan in the House with perhaps equal amounts of Democrats and Republicans in support or not in support? You know, that depends on what, what legislation looks at, uh, look, looks like, I should say. And, you know, just minor little tweaks can, can either gain you some votes uh, from one side or, or, or make you lose votes from one or the other side. I think there are enough members of the House and enough members of the Senate from both parties uh, that want to fix what the American people understand is broken. What major components of the immigration reform guidelines that have been put forth thus far do you think need to survive through the legislative process to make the effort really effective? I think we have to deal with border security. We have to deal with some of the other issues out there. For example, the fact that we are, we are, you know, we're educating some of the brightest people in the world 
and then we're sending them out of the country to basically go compete against us. That makes no sense. We have to have a way where people can come to, for example, ag workers, to, to do the work that, frankly, not many people in our country uh, want to do. So we have to have a process for that. We have to have a way that people can come legally. We have to deal with the kids, the young men and women, who were brought here by their parents. They didn't make that choice. We have to recognize that there are 10 or 11 million people in the country who are here, but we have to deal with them in a way that's humane and that's reasonable and that's long-term. So when you ask what has to be in it, all of those things have to be fixed. Do you think you can get it done this year? Gosh, I hope so. <laughs> but, but I will tell you this. I am convinced that if we do not get it done this year, uh, we probably will not get it done for the next four years. Some of the pundits have said that um, the GOP moving forward, uh, working with Democrats on reforming immigration policy is partly driven by GOP losses in the general election in 2012. Would, would you agree with that? There's no doubt that the Republican Party has a branding issue. I would say with immigrants, and I think in, 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 to a large degree it's based on this issue on immigration reform and and some things that have said that have been said by some Republicans. If that gets Republicans, some Republicans to want to uh, solve it, well, that's a good thing. Thank you, uh, Representative Mario Diaz Bellart, for talking to us. I appreciate that. Have a great day. You too. Today marks the beginning of Justice Week at the University of Florida, which aims to raise awareness about human trafficking. Many events are being held this week around Gainesville in order to shed light on the human trafficking that happens in the United States and right here in our community. Vice President of the Fight Organization at UF, Jesse John, defines human trafficking as much more than just sex. Trafficking is when there is a person who um, is being forced, forced into either, you know, sexual act or an act of labor, they're being forced into it. That's a, you know, and with no pay. She adds that not only does human trafficking occur in the U.S. more than most people realize, but that some of the most incidents happen right in our backyard. And that happens here in America. Uh, Florida is number three, you know, with for human trafficking, where a lot of victims of human trafficking come through. In addition, she says that many of these trafficking cases happen right here in Gainesville. President and CEO of the Child Advocacy Center, Sherry Kitchens, says that all different types of people are susceptible to this crime. When you talk about populations, sometimes, um, you know, you're looking at, you know, is that men, is that women, is that children? Um, and actually, men, women, and children can all be human trafficking victims. Traffickers are looking for those folks that are vulnerable populations. Uh, 80% of human trafficking victims worldwide are women and children. Uh, but even in this community, we've had men that have been labor trafficking victims, women who've been labor trafficking victims, men and women and children that have all been sex trafficking victims, and, and a few children who've been labor trafficking victims. Kitchens goes on to say that not only do the victims come in all shapes and sizes, but the traffickers do as well, sometimes even starting at a very young age. While most of these cases are related to sex slavery, John says that there are some cases that are slightly different. They're promised a job here in America, um, and they come over, but then it's not, what, not the job that they thought it was, and then they're forced into, you know, human slavery. As president and CEO of the Child Advocacy Center, 
Kitchen says she has witnessed a staggering number of human trafficking incidents and is glad that there is finally legislation to help victims, such as the Safe Harbor Act, which gives victims the opportunity at a better life after they are rescued. Although this and other major strides have been made by her and her organization, she says that the community is still actively coming together to try and stop this heinous crime from happening. At UF this week, there will be events every day to raise awareness for this growing issue, and John hopes that through this, people will realize how prevalent it is in the U.S. and suggest people put themselves and their loved ones in the shoes of the victims. She says to look out for trafficking incidents in airports as well as in the community. And some red flags to look for are nervous younger females with older men who don't seem to be their family. You can call 1-866-373-7888 to report any suspicious activity. Thanks for tuning in to the front page edition of All Things Considered. This has been a broadcast of Florida's 89.1 WUFTFM. I'm Kaylee Chambers. And I'm Shane Chernoff.